0: Are we ready for this? Yes sir. We're ready? Yeah. Brian, do you want to kick this off, buddy, or want me to kick it off? I'm gonna let you do this thing. We are okay. we are we are live, we are we are Memorex. Do you even know what Memorex is, Brent? You
1: know, I, I know the company.
0: Yeah and I know it's
1: camera related. Uh but beyond that I'm not sure. Yeah. And is, I don't know why. I mean I there, should probably know this.
0: There was a saying back in my day that was like, you know, is this live or is it Memorex? And it was just the idea of something having been taped. And uh, this is a recurring theme in my, my life in the month of December here because we were just talking to my daughter the other day and we are like, you need to roll the window down. And she's like, why did you say roll it down? And we're like, well, because... She's like, because it's got a button. So you just button it down and it goes down. And I was like, well, back in the day, on some cars, maybe even cars today, there's probably some that still do this, you had a crank and you had to roll it and you rolled it one direction to make it go down and one direction to make it go up. And she looked at me like... That might have been the dumbest idea anybody ever had. Like, why they wouldn't have just put a motor in it day <laughs> yeah. one. So, yeah. this, is a, this is this this is is the life that we're getting into, Brent. So, this is well, not... Well, we're not memorized, man. Yeah, this yeah, is live. We're
1: live. So, with that, let's kick it off. So, welcome to the Hot Isle. My name is Brent Piatti. With me, I've got the guy who's been talking in the lovely voice. How you doing, Brian?
0: I, oh, you meant, I thought you meant Barry, but...
1: Well, well we're going to hear from Barry. He yeah. does
0: have a, a lovely voice as well. Brian Carpenter, I am here. I am your co-host, and I'm happy to be here.
1: Well, we're happy to be together. So today, with the goal of the show, uh, we're going to talk more about cybersecurity. And, and these things keep popping up, right? As as the world evolves, as technology becomes more and more parts of our lives, uh, not only as individuals, but but for, techno- or for, for companies, we've got to figure out how we're going to manage it. So with us today, we have Barry Hensley, affectionately known inside and outside of the company as the colonel. Uh, who is the chief threat intelligence officer at SecureWorks, Barry? Welcome to the show. How are you doing today?
2: I'm I'm extremely well. Appreciate the opportunity to come talk to to you and and your listeners.
1: Absolutely. So so Barry, uh, you know I think we had a conversation before. I talked to some of your folks, but um, the colonel, right? It comes from something. Tell us tell us a little bit about yourself and and where that that you know quote unquote moniker comes from
2: yeah i'm very blessed to have spent a little over 24 years in the army i was an army uh, signal officer uh and and brent appreciate uh, as i mentioned earlier your service as well but uh i actually started uh, uh, back in the early 80s uh, and a communications officer people may think that has to do with marketing no, that actually has to do with providing at&t like services to the department of defense and so you know, as a young lieutenant, I was responsible for establishing voice, data, and video communications to various units deployed. and And as the crazy as it sounds, I had deployments in uh, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Somalia, and Iraq through that tenure. And uh, in the early 2000s, I commanded a battalion in Iraq, and and we ultimately were responsible for the initial commercialization of the Ford operating bases. And in my last two positions in the Department of Defense which is where the colonel piece comes in. I was a director of operations uh, for a, a unit called Joint Task Force Global Network Ops, which folded up But today, which is U.S. Cyber Command. And then I followed that uh, as the director of the Army's Global Network Operating Security Center, which today is U.S. Army Cyber Command. And, 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 so, and both organizations ultimately were responsible for operating and defending different portions of the Department of Defense Networks. And so as I transitioned to SecureWorks in 2010, you know, you can imagine a guy trying to figure out what he was going to do after some 24 years of service, and 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 having spent my last six years in both the intelligence and Army cyber operational space, uh, I people ask me all the time, "What do you do at SecureWorks?" And I do exactly what I did in Department of Defense uh, in at SecureWorks, and that's, you know, enabling our clients. Uh, to defend themselves and now my specific responsibilities at SecureWorks are uh, enabling security analysts security researchers and answer responders in that mission
1: very cool well you know in doing doing my cyber stalking that i did on you you're, you've got a very limited uh i guess uh, amount of data on you but what you do have um I, one of the things i saw was you supported the gig the global information grid uh as as, as your time as a colonel in, in the army tell us about what the gig is
2: so, so, as part of the role at Joint Task Force Global Network Operations, the commander of that at the time was a General uh, Charlie Kroom. and and General Croom had wore two hats. Uh, one of that was his mission to defend the the Department of Defense networks. The second one was to operate it. And the Global Information Grid is really the the combination of all the various services: the Army, Air Force, Navy, and Marines and in this case, those agencies that support it, their various networks and how they come together. It it equated to about 7 million computers across 3,500 post camps and stations. And you can imagine the complexities to command and control such uh, a a network and subnetworks, especially when you're relying on various different organizations and their own uh, command and control control, uh, infrastructures, uh policies and procedures let alone their own equipment
0: yeah i'm not i'm not actually sure there's a lot of people that can understand those complexities i mean we we know people who you know operate um you know global multinational corporations networks and their information systems but i don't believe many of those have 1.2 million employees right? So, For sure. uh, that is, that is a, that is a management level. I mean, obviously some scale is just, you just keep scaling. Uh, but that is a, that's a significant task. And it is, it's frankly, sometimes having done it myself at a much smaller scale, it's quite mind boggling.
2: Yeah. And I don't, uh, remember the exact date. I think it was around 2009 when I was at the Army's global network operating security center, we had probably 38,000 computer security incidents. Now, you can debate what the definition of a security incident is but you can imagine we were pretty busy trying to determine how many of those were true positives versus false positives and also determine whether we needed to to ring the alarm bell associated with potentially what may be the impact of those incidents
0: yeah it's uh, it's it's quite quite a quite a task and on top of that you know like one of the things that Brent found as well probably through linkedin it's just you know, not only do you have a, a nice bachelor's in information systems, but also a master's in telecommunications and a master's in strategic studies. Um, and so that's really interesting, right? That's a, quite a bit of education. Were you doing all of this while you were, uh, you know, serving as your, in your post in the army? Or when did you go through and get the rest of those degrees?
2: Yeah. You know, so, you know, in the early 80s, I graduated from Georgia Southern uh, University and uh, and back there, I was management information systems. And so I already had a background in Computer programming and uh, computer design and engineering, you know. Now I, I've got to admit to you, back then, kind of like you saying, you're rolling down the window. You know, back then it was Fortran, COBOL, and Pascal, and well, well, some people on the on the uh, chat today may know what those are. I was fortunate as a signal officer in the army. You had an opportunity at a portion of your career to take your uniform off and go back to college, and so. In the early 90s, after I'd got back from operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm in Saudi Arabia, uh, I was selected to go to the University of Colorado and and get a master's in engineering, specifically in telecommunications. And you'll you'll love this. My focus of studies was around asynchronous transfer mode. And I realized it had a short success in the commercial space, but uh, ATM actually, uh, with all of its warts and promises, the Army actually adopted, uh, and I was actually the first uh, commander to deploy asynchronous transfer mode as part of our communications architecture uh, in Operation Enduring Free- Freedom in Iraq. And so so to your point, I was blessed that the Army let me took my uh, uniform off to go focus on a field of study that I was able to bring back to the Department of Defense Uh to enable our networks based upon that those technologies. Now later in my career as a lieutenant colonel, I was selected for the National War College, and I was able to use a different part of my brain, and it was focused around international strategic studies, and much of those studies were around the art of war, meaning trying to understand you know Chinese warfare, Russian warfare, uh, the impacts of uh, the U.S. operating in the Middle East and the cultural clashes between the two worlds. And what's what's interesting enough is I came out of that experience. Most of that art of war that we studied is applied in cyber operations today uh, and and trying to understand the various tactic techniques and procedures that the adversaries use today kind of line up with many of those same philosophical tenets uh, based upon those various country warfare models.
0: Yeah, so I'm going to go out on a little bit of reach here. Uh, do you watch a lot of movies? Because I, I do. So
2: do, you, do yeah, 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 when I, when I'm not in the fight with our clients, uh, my daughter is a big star Wars fan. And so tonight is the premiere of the, the latest star Wars movie. She's actually taking me at 11 o'clock tonight to a movie.
0: I think we're all going to that. Have you seen uh have you seen bat the movie battleship that was, uh, I don't know a- the alien invaders and the Navy and all that.
2: I did. It was, it was years ago. I don't I don't remember all the context of it, yeah. but yes, I, I did.
0: You reminded me because one of the quotes in there was the art of war. Uh, and it was that kind of like uh knucklehead type commander. And he was like, yeah, you know, the art of war, fight them where they're not. And the, um, uh, I think it was the Japanese commander was like, that's not what that means. You know? So yeah. when it was, uh, it's a, it's one of my favorite parts of the movie, by the way, because I use it and I'm, I'm, I'm a lot, I'm obviously very ignorant as to what it means, but, uh, I just like the quote anyways. So it's uh thank you very much for reminding me of that and yeah me not an a... awkward movie moment
2: no worries
1: <laughs> so so Barry
0: uh, cool so you get out of the you get out of the military off active
1: duty you move into SecureWorks that's your first gig out of uh, off of active duty
2: it is matter of fact I'm my only so I joined in 2010 I've uh, will be in the, this April I'll be in the company eight years now I you know progressed within the organization itself I'm responsible for about 350 of our 2,300 employees, and and the the group that I specifically uh, empower, and, and as I tell people, I work for them. They don't work for me. is is to ensure the success of our security analysts, which are looking at the various security uh, events that are tied to security controls to draw conclusions on potential threat actor activity and, and which may drive a response. Uh, the security researchers of the group, which are some 85 of them, are what I believe the very world's best at understanding the adversarial tactic techniques and procedures. And then, obviously, you know we all know it's not if it's it's when. I'm also blessed to be part of the instant response group, who are the guys are parachuting in uh, to help clients uh, contain and eradicate the threat once they're in the network. and And the three groups. Are just a great uh, uh, connection and synergy based upon. You can imagine young analysts that come in the organization aspire to be incident responders and researchers, uh, and it, it adds a natural progression from a career perspective. In some cases, that's why we're able to to keep employees so long within SecureWorks is we have a natural mapping of progression that they they can they can have
1: so Barry, you know, I'm looking at this, the CTU or the counter threat group, you know, if I didn't know, if I didn't know who was running it, uh, and being an army guy, I would think counter threat unit. That sounds very military esque. I even read through some of the job postings and you have, you have red units and, and things like that. Um, which reminds me of Rick Marcinko and red cell and the whole seal team six stuff, but, um, was, was CTU or counter threat unit and all these kind of uh, vernacular, very military-esque. Was it there before you, or is it something you kind of brought into the organization?
2: So it's funny you say that. So that the term or the acronym CTU, kind of threat unit, was actually an intern uh, by the name of David Wharton who was working at the company before I had joined, and they were trying to figure out what they're going to call the research group a couple of years before I got there, and David actually came up with that acronym. And ironically enough. David, uh, once he graduated from college, uh, went off and and he was an intern for SecureWorks and worked for someone else, actually in the financial space, doing countermeasures for snort-based appliances. We have since brought David back, meaning he's actually an employee. And he is in our, if you look at the various groups within the research group, I have a a CTU ops group, and his job is to do countermeasure development uh, with the various security platforms that we can apply intelligence to. Uh, however, the rest of the acronym soup and the research group you can blame me for. So as an example, we have a, a KIC, a cyber intel cell. We have a CTUSO team, a special operations team whose job is to do, uh, the, think of them, back to your special ops analogy, think of them as the weapons experts. And they're, they're my hunters. And the hunters in, in our world are the ones that will work with clients with the understanding that they have no uh, indication of compromise within their network. But we assume, uh, just by the, the Army nature and me, that you're comp- you are you most likely are compromised and you don't, do, don't know it. And so they actually come into their client environment with a bunch of tools that they have developed to draw a conclusion on whether an adversary has eluded their security controls and they don't know it. And so that's why we call them the hunters, and that's why we call them the Special Operations Group S.O., based upon that. The other group that I have is the CTUTI group, the threat intelligence group. They're really the support group. I have uh, surveillance guys that actually do brand surveillance, meaning they will, will sit and they'll comb the internet from an open source intelligence perspective and try to understand poten- potentially where threat actors are talking about you and your organization, or has things leaked out of your organizations that got dropped in a paste bin and you didn't know it I have a C2 support team uh, that, uh, it, you know, as you think about the the Army or the Department of Defense model of combat, combat support and combat service support, we have guys whose sole job is to build a relationship with our more ad- advanced clients and ultimately be an enrichment service so that when our clients have a question, we do the hard research for them. But it is interesting you pulled that thread associated with the acronym so, soup of the research group and uh, while I didn't come up with the first acronym I am to blame for everyone that followed.
1: Absolutely. Well fair enough. Now you talked about um the CTU, this group of kind of highly skilled professionals. Talk to us about those individuals and, and you know why they're regarded uh so highly within the within the industry.
2: You know it was back to my my comment about their passion uh to be in in this case uh, to be the experts on the threat and so you know to be able to 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 have such a focus you have to have also such a drive and that and that drive within the research group uh if you look at our, the mission of the team it's to protect our clients and nothing else matters uh it's to provide effectiveness and efficiency to our security operations center and our consultant team specifically the incident response team and it's also innovation Meaning, you know, don't just hire another employee to solve a problem. If we can innovate, uh, uh, in this case, a way to solve that problem in a more elegant way. And so that's their mindset. Protect the clients and nothing else matters. And so when, it, when, you, when you think about that, and back to the term, the, the art of war, the adversary is, is in many casing, in cases, out-innovating Ah, uh, the industry today. meaning that they have their own research group. They have their own you know uh, collaboration forums. They have their own you know conferences that are online that they're trying to determine the 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 next best way to infiltrate a network. And because of that, now imagine the research team has to out innovate the adversary. And, and and in in many cases, that takes their own personal professional development. That's not something they're just going to learn in the classroom. That's something they've always got to be on trying to, to do. And these guys are constantly trying to figure out not only how to, you know, do offensive security, meaning think like an adversary, but they also got to think like a defender. How would they detect an adversary that is trying to use some new technique? So, as an example, we we, you know, we use the term "living off the land." You know, there was a day where, and we do. We we consume hundred thousand pieces of malware a day, and from that malware, we detonate in sandboxes, and we can draw various conclusions from. But imagine an adversary who's become a sysadmin on your network, an admin uh, that is using Windows tools like PowerShell and and xcopy and 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 other Windows uh, command line tools that you now have to detect them in the midst of uh, what looks like sysadmin activity. And we call that living in a contested space. And so you've got to potentially assume that an adversary has become a sysadmin, and that requires you not only be an expert about the adversary, you have to be an expert on how operating systems work, whether it be Windows or Linux or Mac, and also how the communications of those systems work, uh, meaning that if an adversary is using a remote desktop protocol, which is a Windows protocol, They've got to be an expert on it as well. One we saw most recently, you'll love this. We saw an adversary using bits, and bits is actually the, a transfer protocol that Windows d- uh, developed to download files. So when you do patch updates, uh, Microsoft actually uses this bits to do that. Well, the adversary wrote its uh, command and control tied to bits, and imagine all of a sudden... Uh, what a normal security control would think is a normal Microsoft transfer to download a patch, it was actually the the adversary using this background intelligence transfer service uh, to, to transmit not only command and control, but also uh, various scripts in order to elude security controls. Well, imagine what it takes from a researcher perspective to stay on top of not just adversarial tactic, techniques and procedures, but also the various... Technologies that are enablers for uh, organizations today?
0: yeah, it's a, that's amazing, and that's that's actually one of the things as I was kind of thinking about uh, you know how, talking to you and one of one of the premise of like kind of my thought process around this as somebody who has a security background, it almost feels like um, the, the the highest value theft available today no longer requires a security guard. Like you could almost just leave your doors unlocked. Um, it's going to come from an, an angle that you are completely not expecting. Uh, I like the idea of like you know think like an adversary, uh, and the other one is you know this is a new level of organized crime. uh the organization is at like a you know multi corporate level, like you said, having conventions and things like that um and so you know that that level of organization requires you know a little bit more planning than just oh hey i need to I need to put host intrusion protection on these you know these machines
2: yeah and and think about it from a law enforcement perspective because we do work closely with the law enforcement community. You know, we may have some idea of where these uh, cyber criminals may be, but there's also a bunch of safe havens out there across the Internet. Right. You know, the day of I knew where my adversary was and I was going to do a force on force kind of combat campaign doesn't necessarily work in the virtual world, knowing that I'm not allowed to go into a certain country or a certain area. And we almost have to wait for them to go on vacation you know, to, to Hawaii before we can interdict them.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. And so, like, as we get into kind of shifting into the industry, uh, you know, the FBI, you, know, you guys are really good at these acronyms. I'm still learning. Um, so, you know, the FBI, the, the cost of cybercrime uh, in the U.S. led to a loss of roughly $1.3 billion in 2016, uh, probably more than that here as 2017 wraps up. And uh, it doesn't look like it's going to slow down for 2018. Uh, that's, that's a significant business. I mean, that's a that's a huge market cap for theft.
2: You know, it's funny if you just take a portion of that. So if you look at the 700 instant response engagements we did last year, uh, 84% of those were cybercrime-based, and, 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 and meaning they were leveraging ransomware to make money. They were using business email compromise, banking trojans. They were targeting point-of-sale system. To the stat that you just used, I'll, I'll give you a sub-piece of that, if you look at just business email compromise and 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 I don't know how much you you, you know about the the construct but imagine an adversary has been able to uh, get into a CEO's computer uh, or uh, emulate a CEO's email and send an email to the purchaser of the company and say hey you know i've got another great opportunity Ah, uh, we can get a great discount if you can pay this uh, purchase order by COB today. Please transfer four hundred thousand dollars from point A to point B. And and honestly, that CEO has done that with that uh, purchase agent for the last year, two or three times a week. And the purchase agent just kind of thought that was another thing uh, that they ought to they ought to just go and do because the CEO asked them to do that. Well, crazy enough. Uh, If you look at the FBI report tied to just business email compromise scams, uh, last year it was, if I look at the number, it was $5 billion scammed, meaning, you know, adversaries understanding, emulating CEOs, CFOs, purchase agents, because they had compromised their email and, uh, and, and read through their email and understand their processes within the organization, they went and made $5 million in a single year.
0: Yeah, I'm actually thinking about picking that up next week, uh, just for a little bit of supplemental income after Christmas.
2: Yeah, You you can just imagine uh, those that draw the same conclusions you do of what the opportunities that are out there, if they took on the criminal side of this. We're fortunate that we also have so many people that are inspired to do, continue to do the right thing, and to combat those that are trying to do what's wrong.
1: So, Barry, you, we talked about this FBI report saying 1.3 billion dollars in the U.S. in 2016, and then we talked about 5 billion dollars scams through business email compromise. Is that a is that a worldwide total?
2: No, the the five billion scam. As I, I go back and actually look at the initial report itself, I think, uh, and and I'll pull the thread for you. If I remember right, it was just in the U.S.
1: Wow. So I guess what I'm I'm trying to draw the conclusion between the one point three uh, billion that the FBI reported versus the business email compromise, where w- what's not counted and and why in the FBI statistics?
2: Yeah, I I, I couldn't tell you. Well, I think we'd have to, you know. You know, as as you guys know, data is twisted in a very different way, and it all depends on how the x axis and y axis are are aligned. But it would clearly be worth it to pull that thread. Yeah, we're going to
0: we're going to have to read some footers and some asterisks to go figure that one out. <laughs> Sounds like something for uh, the future. And, it, and it's interesting. I mean, you mentioned in the uh, SecureWorks State of the Cybercrime Report and, and the Business Email Compromise. Um, you know, th- there's a couple of things on there, which is ironically, you know, Brent and I have all of a sudden in the podcast hit a couple of these things. Uh, we actually just had a speaker on talking about GDPR. Uh, so, you know, since we're since we're looking at that and there are some other things in there, right? The kind of the topics or whatever, uh, banking, malware, mobile, organized cyber crime, uh, you know, which is pretty interesting. Uh, and then, you know, traditional malware and things like that curious on gdpr as what as secure as secure works business is related is gdpr something that um you know you it, it doesn't seem like a threat vector so how does that fit into what you're doing for your customers like and what are you guys thinking about that right now
2: you, you know so clear to be uh, honest and transparent i'm not the expert on gdpr but i i was with a uh, a prospect this past week that GDPR was a major topic for them, based on their in some forty cu- countries. Yeah, and and how do various, uh, you know, how does a managed security service provider who is sitting in multiple security operation centers around the world? How do they deal with uh, the? Because ultimately, we've got to be able to collect the security events, and and today we, you know, process about two hundred and sixty billion events a day, uh, and those events. In many cases, it could be something simple, you log into your machine this morning, but oh, by the way, what if it's an adversary logging in from Nigeria, that's a different kind of event? Well, you've got to collect both events to be able to draw a conclusion on whether it was your normal login from uh, Austin, Texas, or it was an adversary logging in from N- Nigeria. And so imagine all those various logons of those various security events uh, in order for you know the various uh, technologies, the machine learning tools that are out there today. Our specific counter threat platform has got to be able to take those events and draw conclusions from them. Thus, you got to process those events from various different countries, and and as you know from a GDPR uh, GDPR perspective, you know it's it's now the the journey of how do I protect personal information for a given country, whether it be Germany or. Italy or France or whatever it may be, based upon that country-specific uh, laws and regulations. And so what does SecureWorks do in that space? Uh, you can imagine a couple things. We're an advisor, which for this recent prospect, they, they were like, hey, how do I even understand as a corporation that's headquartered here in the U.S., I've got all these manufacturing centers sitting in 40 countries around the world, some in South America, some in Europe, how do I know what data I can give you and what data I can and what data do you have to process in country and what data uh, you, in this case, you can cor- uh, correlate and consolidate and report back to me. And so, so, so the key aspects of GDPR that we're working right now is really helping clients understand the the transparent, what they call the transparency framework, uh, which ultimately need help them uh have a clear understanding about personal data use the consent rules around that uh what are the 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 rights of the individuals from a data perspective uh data protection perspective and then what are the mandatory breach disclosure rules the next pillar that uh, we're helping people with is what they call the compliance journey right so what do you have to design in to ensure privacy What do you got to do from a data protection impact assessments? What do you got to do from how do you account for the data? How do you do data uh, rights? And then ultimately the last pillar is, uh, which is an interesting one, around punishment. So what are your potential uh, risk posture associated with taking some risk around where your data sets and can't set? Because there's now tougher Uh, punishment and penalties, as a matter of fact, associated with some of the decisions you may make as an an organization associated with that data. And so we we have a a number of consultants that will work with various organizations to make sure that as they look at their own uh, telecommunications infrastructure and their own data processing, what that looks like. But from a managed security service perspective, it makes us try to engineer How do we still draw the same conclusions from all those security events, whether they set, stay in country, stay in region, or we can leverage that data in a more holistic silo uh, across the machine learning platform?
0: I don't know, Brian, you had another question. Go ahead. uh, Sorry about that. So, yeah. um, And, you know, we were, as you're talking about all these things, obviously the other thing that we mentioned offline. Uh, was this um, recent annual North American Threat Intelligence Summit. And we're going to kind of get into some of these threat vectors, uh, just from a curiosity a, a perspective. And it's kind of, it's probably almost, it's not the same thing, but similar to tra- saying, you know, which child is your favorite child. Um, but there's a lot of different types of threats that are out there. Um, which one, I guess, piques your interest the most or, you know, challenges your gray matter the most and makes you you know, kind of get fired up to come into work every day, you know, like I, you know, you just mentioned machine learning. And I was like, wow, Uh, using, I never even kind of really thought to myself about using machine learning in a negative aspect. Um, And, you know, so that's what I work on a daily basis. And now I'm like, wow, I need to think about that. Um, What kind of really, I guess, you know, get your blood, blood boiling, wakes you up in the morning and says, I've got to go learn more about this. This is not only extremely challenging, it's extremely risky, but also, you know, frankly, it's a little bit fun to work on as a result.
2: Wow. You know, the the word fun is an interesting uh, word in the space that I I, I live in day in and day out. You know, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, what keeps me up at night? Um, You know, ultimately, just for the fact that we have so many uh, organizations that do not truly understand what it takes to defend a network. Right. You know, when you have this discussion around how do I secure a network? You know, it's not one security control. It's not ten security controls. You know, it's a it's a multitude of security controls that also have to be wrapped around people, process, and technology, and and so, so part of my passion includes education, and so, and and so as you look at you mentioned one of our uh, recent reports that we did, but our recent IR reports based upon the findings that we did in in 2016 uh, and 17 kind of we're in four buckets, right? So uh, prevent where you can prevent, detect where you can't, uh, rapidly respond, and then ultimately predict. And so, so, I, so I, I spent a lot of gray matter in those buckets, right? So what does it take to prevent an adversary from ev- uh, evading security controls? And so from a prevent perspective, and, and, and as we have various workshops with clients, you know we we things that you know just the fundamental stuff that you know people build a network and they don't consider security as a fundamental principle associated with that and so how do we inspire people to build better networks you know you, you tell me how critical manufacturing centers are to you but they sit on the same segment as your corporate network and so you know if you look at some of the the impacts of various organizations you know where they said, "Hey, my entire network was brought down." Well, why didn't you build segmentation into your design, and why didn't they have different Active Directory farms associated with that? You know, we we know that adversaries leverage credentials, and so and they target you know Outlook Web Access as a potential avenue of approach in your network. So why don't you use two-factor authentication, and why isn't that mandatory? And 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 we know that Ask uh, adversaries leverage local. Uh, privileges, meaning like, imagine if an adversary got access to your computer and you're allowed to add software to your machine, meaning you have local admin rights, why would you ever enable that? And so much of my gray matter is thinking around what are the what a fundamental uh, blocking and tackling things that people ought to be doing and how do we inspire them to go do those things. Uh, you know, So if you now take the step, next step from a prevention perspective, uh, it's now how do you detect, right? So let's say prevention fails. Well, today, the endpoint's a new parameter. And so how do you ensure you have the best endpoint in place, uh, which I spent a lot of time with recently because I'm so inspired by just how valuable an advanced endpoint threat detection solution is? You know, how, why would you ever click on an email uh, without running it to a sandbox first? Meaning we know an adversary, you know, 62% of the time last year an adversary was using phishing to get into your network. Well, why would you click on an attachment or a web link to not run it through a, a, a technology sandbox prior? Or in this case, from a respond perspective, how come you don't have the right logs so that when we parachute in to help you, that we can determine how an adversary got in your network. So I, I'll tell you some, some quick stats uh, that I think you'll find a little interesting. Um, when we did all those incident response engagements last year, uh, 42% of the time we'd show up, the client had insufficient logs. 38% of the time, they had overwritten their logs. So when they had logs... They didn't have enough log retention policy They'd overwrite the logs. 12% of the time, uh, they couldn't even confirm how the adversary got in. And so when you start looking at those stats, I'm like, how do we inspire people to do the basic network security hygiene? And so some of my gray matter, which may have surprised you, is in how do we better be better defenders uh, in the space we're in today? And then... Also, with the assumption that if your security controls fail, you, what do you do then? I do spend a lot of time in the incident spo- incident response world of how do we do that faster, you know, more effective uh, to minimize an, an adversarial breach. And and so from that point, I'll leave you with this. You know, CISOs today, in some cases, get all you know. Know, tell their security team, you have failed if a piece of malware get in your ne- gets in your network, so establishes command and control. An adversary doesn't win until he's actually exfiltrating the data out of your network that's out there. Well, there's a lot in between from the first time an adversary got in your network to the time he actually got what he wanted. We as a security community have got to start thinking about how do we live in a contested space that an adversary may have eluded your security controls, but they have not been successful. And if they've not been successful, how do you interdict them before they can? I say that we can still win in that contested space with the realization of one out innovating the adversary, but also ensuring an adversary doesn't get to their 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 prize or the goal that they're looking for.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So a, a couple things that I want to to dive deeper into – uh, you, you brought up uh, in the in your comments about endpoints and devices, and I wanted to specifically talk about IoT. What that means to you, to businesses, and how we're looking to solve the challenges around this kind of explosion of things that are connected to the internet. Right? If we look at Din last, I think it was October, uh, that that had the botnet attack and took down half of the freaking internet. Um, that was based on zombie home devices like TVs and routers and DVRs, right? So um, th- we're, we're only adding billions and billions more of these devices as time progresses. What are you guys thinking around that space? Um, and, and what does that mean to to works in organizations as a whole?
2: You know, I, I, you know, I think it's just a natural evolution of especially as you can imagine all the various startups that are, are popping up, uh, that they're going to leverage those commercial off-the-shelf technologies. Matter of fact, I've got a, you know, a wink system here in my house and, and everything from lights, the garage doors to, you know, my wife's or the the thermostat, which my, oh by the way, my wife frees me every night based upon (laughs) she she, only, only my wife keeps a a house at 63 degrees irrelevant of what time of the year it is. And so, First of all, from an Internet of Things perspective, you would obviously go after the hardest problem we got to go solve as security professionals, because it it, it's there's not necessarily a a group of organizations that are taking a step back and saying I'm going to build security ground up into Internet of Things. They're trying to figure out from day one how do I make you know how do I enable uh those various things in a way that I'm going to leverage the infrastructure that we've made from an internet in a very fast, reliable way. And so, and because of that uh, rapid pace of innovation, because you have a lot of organizations that are trying to get to market first, you know, so whether it be the initial Honeywells of the world that had came up with some initial alarm systems that are out there that can be remotely managed and, and monitored. So now all of a sudden, now to be able to go to Home Depot and you can buy all those various nests and winks and various products off the shelf. Uh and, and so now there's a rust to market, and that rust to market's now causing challenges of how do we protect those. And so so the adversary now says, here's a target of opportunity. I've got a window of opportunity based upon all these various new technologies that are racing to the internet that i could leverage them as part of my arsenal my first concern which is the one you just mentioned a while ago was the arsenal of denial of service right so if i can figure out how to turn all those various internet of things into my botnet army and i can leverage all those and 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 cause denial of services in a very you know targeted way all of a sudden, from a, a, to, to remain anonymous associated with my campaign is a pretty easy thing to do because how do you know the source of the adversary based upon you know masking themselves in what I call the fog of war? And mm-hmm. so, you know, I, I, at the moment I don't have an answer. I do see it as a tremendous opportunity for the security com- community one to provide leadership, uh, two in this case to take a step back and and figure out what right is going to look like when this uh, as this thing evolves. but but you know I, as a security professional, I'm excited about the opportunity. Uh, but at the same time, I'm also concerned as a security practitioner, knowing that how many things are coming into our corporation's ecosystem that may be too late to realize that they're already there and the business has started to rely on them. and now we got to figure out how to support them even though there was not a initial business case built around them.
1: Yeah. It's, it, you know, it's, it's mind boggling to think about, you said 260 billion, is it, I guess, threats or things or incidents or that you're, you're tracking every single day. That's both the good and the bad.
2: Yeah. Uh, and so, so yeah, Should I'll clarify the, the number is we got some, uh, you know, 40, four 4,500 clients globally in about 60 countries and hundreds of thousands of security controls we monitor and manage each day, we're collecting all those various uh, uh, network events or system events. It's 260 billion a day. And ma- matter of fact, I'll, I'll tell you, you, know, you mentioned our platform, the counter-threat platform a while ago. I, I picked a client for you, and let me just tell you the, the magnitude of what clients have got to deal with today. Uh, so th- this specific... Uh, Client, You know, know, as an enterprise client, uh, has, in this case, 26 firewalls, a couple dozen uh, intrusion detection systems, about uh, 10,000 endpoints, meaning they have uh, 10,000 computers uh, supporting their employees, and about 1,500 various servers that are out there today. Just those alone, in a given day, uh, had generated 500 million events. This is one company. Mm. Of those 500 million events, there we, our platform, what we call this the haystack, the counter threat platform, were able to to draw those down, leveraging what we call sense making, and got that down about three million events of interest. Well, we then through, you know, various uh, what we call 4C, which is our advanced correlation. Construct. We were able to get that down about two hundred thousand various events. Meaning, we were able to correlate those three million events of interest to really about two hundred thousand. Meaning, most of those were duplicates are related in some ways. And then through advanced a- analytics, we had got that down to about five thousand. Well, those five thousand turned into security events. So remember, all that initially was somewhat noise. We got that down to about 5,000 events. Watch this. Of those 5,000 events, about 4,500 of those were low threat, meaning you know we're going to log them, we're going to look at them in the future, but we don't think you ought to worry about them. Uh, about uh, 53 of those events were medium threats, meaning uh, it probably require a d- additional level of investigation, but it's not something I'm going to wake you up at 2 o'clock in the, in the morning about. One of those events in that haystack of 500 million events turned out to be a high threat and that you ought to be ringing the fire alarm and get your response team together to go run down how an adversary to, your security controls. So that's a combination of technology or counter threat platform, the expertise of our people, but also, you know, 18 years of process that we've put together to to pull that off. And so the complexity and the challenges that organizations have today is, is overwhelming.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's it certainly, it, it's not this discussion we want to have today, but I'd love to hear about how you guys uh, build your architecture for scale and how you're managing 250 billion, which could, you know, with the amount of endpoints going up and the, the kind of elusiveness or, or, or allure of, of this type of uh, cyber threat world, Scaling well, that to five hundred billion or you know, well, something something larger.
2: We'll get our chief technology officer on the on the line with you, John Ramsey, who by far is the he will, first of all, if we call him the godfather of the research group and, and John was employee number three and was involved in building much of our technology over the last seventeen years. So we'll definitely get John on the line with you.
1: Yeah, I just you know we don't have to dig into it, but I went through some of the job postings. You guys are using a bunch of different Hadoop uh, platforms. Uh, let's see what else: uh, Elasticsearch, a whole bunch of things in in that space. So uh, certainly be interesting. Now moving on. So 250 billion, probably uh, uh, you know clearly coming from somewhere, whether they're malicious or not. Uh, we talked about this aspect of organized cybercrime, and you know we heard about it. I think a few episodes back about how these—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, again syndicated crime. It's organization structured just like yours and mine and Brian's that we work at that have um, call centers and crazy things that we would never think of uh, when you have you know ransomware on your on your PC or something to that effect. But talk to us about organized cybercrime
2: yeah, so uh, you you talked about ransomware, and so I think it would be worth to uh, to pull that thread. And I think that will be a you know a, an interesting vignette that takes one pillar uh, that adversaries are making you know a monetary gain. And so first of all, if I think you got to take a step back of what the cyber criminal world looked like uh, you know a couple of years ago and and honestly has been looking like for you know ten or fifteen years. And, and so we had a period of time that you saw lots of banking Trojans, where ultimately adversaries were trying to to get a hold of banking accounts. And if they could get a hold of those banking accounts, they could somehow uh, leverage, in, in this specific example, I'm going to target your point of sale system. And as part of targeting that point of sale system, I'm going to get your track one, track two data that I can ultimately turn into a credit card. I could ultimately potentially go to Walmart. I could turn that into a gift card. I could go to an ATM machine, turn that into cash, uh, and ultimately get that back to me. You can imagine what it took to pull that off, including when I had to write sophisticated code to, when I had to understand the point of sale systems, I had to understand the sophisticated code of, of how to uh, target those point of sale systems. I had to figure out how to get that in your network so that you could target those point of sale systems, I had to figure out once I got all the track one, track two data, I had to get it out of the network, and once I got it out of the network, I had to figure out how to monetize it. You know, turn that into credit cards, and then I all, then unless I was going to go to every ATM machine around, you know, uh, you know a certain region, I was going to hire, inspire people to cash out those credit cards into cash, and and pay them and send money to me. That's a pretty expensive business to be in. And so you mentioned ransomware. We have seen an explosion with ransomware. And I believe for, because it's so much easier uh, to monetize, uh, because now all you got to do is write some code. You got to distribute it, email, you got to host a website and you get paid in Bitcoin and you're done. You don't have to worry about money mules. You don't have to worry about credit cards. You don't have to worry about ATM machines. You're done. And, And oh, by the way, the the risk to the business is real. Uh, if you look at the data from a ScareWorks perspective, uh, quarter over quarter, we've seen an 83% increase, quarter over quarter uh, in ransomware. And most recently, last quarter uh, from the previous quarter was a 55% increase as well. We've seen 80-some variants of ransomware this year alone. And so there's a lot of people that said, hey, as you alluded to earlier, hey, that worked. Why don't I just duplicate something that somebody else has uh, found successful? And, and, and because of that, a lot of people are, are monetizing that in lots of different ways. Now, you know we did spend most of the time today talking about how people are monetizing you know, the, the cybercrime space. Uh, I will tell you, one we haven't talked about is people that are leveraging all this uh, innovation in a destructive way. And so, if you go back and look at what happened in Ukraine a while this past summer, where many believe that to be ransomware, as you remember, that was ransomware used for a different purpose—not to make money. It was ransomware that was actually used to bring operational damage to businesses, and in many cases, uh, as a you know potential act of war. Right. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I have. Policy differences, or I have uh, various uh, differences between one nation and another, and potentially I'm going to use this new innovation to bring harm to you as a country, to potentially change your, you know, political desires or direction based on the pain that I bring you. And so, so my point is, there's probably people that are leveraging their expertise from a nation-state perspective. And in the, uh, as, a, as their day job and as their night job, they're out doing cybercrime as well. And there's probably uh, nation states that are learning from cybercriminals to leverage that in their own arsenal to be used at a time and place of their choosing.
0: Yeah, the, the nation state conversation is extremely interesting. It's actually uh, one of the places we wanted to head, although uh, Brent and I were both uh, afraid of uh, actually you know, calling out nation states because we don't want any trouble. They're, uh, extreme, yeah. they're, they're extremely talented at what they do. And, uh, we don't have your, uh, we don't have your threat defense systems. Matter of fact, I think, uh, Brent leaves his IOT wide open. Anybody can turn his lights off.
2: Yeah, so. I, yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and, uh, I will tell you out of the, the engagements we did last year, while 84% of those were cyber criminal based 9% of those, we do believe there was some degree of nation state involvement. Well, we didn't talk about, uh, were the other challenges that organizations have, and, and and that's the hack of activist piece, but also insider threat, right? So the the employee disgruntled employee that was just released and decided that uh, potentially they're going to take a bunch of intellectual property with them as they go out the door, or potentially they're going to do some harm to the organization. Meaning, I'm going to uh, maintain access as I leave the organization to try to continue to to, to filter key information out of the organization.
0: And is there, I mean, like, so you mentioned, there's a, a small amount of it. Like, uh, what is, give me an example of why a nation state, um, I guess, a, 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 yeah. I mean, why would a nation state go after a, uh, a large private organization?
2: Um, you know, the, the most common ones intellectual property, right? Uh-huh. How do I get economic av- advantage is your member from your military days. of uh, there's a lot of different ways, uh, that you can compete. Uh, you know, with you know, an, a world, uh, uh, various organizations. You know, you can bring diplomatic, informational, military, and economic pain associated with each. There's another way to compete, or there's another way from an art of war perspective uh, to win in the end, and that's the economic war. You know, how do how do I my, how am I more prosperous uh, as a country? And so, by far, the greatest use. Uh, that we have seen of nation-state tactic techniques and procedures have been targeting intellectual property. Whether that be, you know, I I, I, w- I want uh, I've got a need uh, based upon I've got energy challenges in my country, and I would instead of development on my own, I would love to know how you're doing developmental work associated with wind turbines. Uh, you know power generation from potentially hydroelectric, whether that be, you know, I, I've got a, you know, a cancer, you know, I've got a medical challenge within my region of the world. And instead of me developing the drugs that I need to be successful, I'm going to go steal the patents associated with or the research associated with those drugs that I can leverage those, and in some cases, resell those in my country as well. So by far, The greatest uh, threat we've seen today from various nation states has been targeting uh, critical intellectual property. Now, what that requires various businesses to do is to understand what is important to them and what's critical to them as an organization and why would somebody else want that information? And if that's true, to what degree are you willing to protect that information as well?
0: And, and speaking of protecting information, uh, you know, as, as you've mentioned, right, a proactive, re, a, a proactive posture versus a reactive posture, uh, although you want a little bit of both. Um, historically, from a security perspective, uh, especially at the executive level, uh, you know, security looks like an insurance policy and everybody sits back and says, oh well you know what are the odds that i'm going to get broken into and then oh uh, what, what are they going to take and then what's that worth to me and then they do a risk analysis and say well i don't want to spend that hundred and fifty thousand dollars or 1.5 million or 150 million on a security architecture that would prevent that because uh, i'd rather just take the chances um and so you know historically in security it has been a very like it's very hard to sell upstream uh, it's very hard to convince people they need it. Um, is that, has that posture changed from an executive level? You probably talked to a lot of executives to, you know, today has that posture changed? Are we seeing an actual mental shift or is it still the same old problem? They don't do it until they get burned.
2: No, I, I think if you look at one, just how public so many breaches have been and, and I'll let you name them all, but if you look at how public they've been over the last year, it clearly uh, continues to be a wake-up call for the boardroom. It's been, uh, clearly a wake-up call for the various CEOs uh, out there that are ultimately now being held accountable. You know, you know, there was a day that all of a sudden it was the the first guy that would be in fear of of their job was the the chief security officer. Today, that's no longer true in my mind. It, it truly is the CEOs and the CFOs and the boards are being accountable for the security posture of the organization. And because of that, we spent a lot of time talking to, to boards and various leadership teams that are out there today. Uh, they're embracing this in a, in, a, in a very positive way, which is exciting for me as a security professional. Now it's taken us a while to get there, but now at the same time, they're, they're scrambling trying to figure out what do I do first? And what scares me is many of them just go off and rush and buy technology. Ah, uh, to try to solve this problem. and And I will tell you, they need to take a deep breath, and they need to first of all, understand you know what are they trying to protect? you know what pieces of their business is more important than others? And then do, as you alluded to earlier, you know some degree of a risk assessment. And then now take a step back and say, from an adversarial perspective perspective, do you truly understand the threats that are out there today? that are of the greatest risk to you. And then based upon that, uh, make an informed decision associated with what's the best way uh, for me to apply my resources to protect my network. And, and, and I also tell people all the time, um, figure what's, figure out what's core to you as a business. And if, if building a, a network or building a security infrastructure and maintaining that infrastructure and, Providing visibility around that infrastructure and responding to threats day in and day out are not core to you as a manufacturing organization or as a retailer or or, or a healthcare organization. You know, let the professionals that are, are doing this that have the ability to leverage their ecosystem, and that's what I'm 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 very proud of what we're doing at SecureWorks, is we have something we call the Net Effect, right? We learn from you know, threats within one organization and we can apply what we learn in that organization to all of our clients that are out there today. You know, if you know, unless you want to go build a seventeen million dollar research group, you probably ought to figure out how to, you know, partner with others to go be successful. And I'm excited that the various leadership teams that are out there today are now having those conversations and they're willing to invest in what they believe is is critical to enable the organization.
0: Yeah, and you you mentioned it in your your own language the the idea that businesses that you know that if your core competency is making um, great hot dogs, some hamburgers, and some pretty good tater tots, please do not store credit cards in your database. Right? Like, uh, you know, there's tokenization businesses <laughs> out there. Like, it's just uh, it's like the most common sense ever. Like, why would you even want to have that risk associated with your business when what you really need to do is Make better tater tots faster, right? Like, you know, don't store my credit card. There's no reason. Um, and that's just at the lowest level, right? You get up to the high levels. Uh, and by the way, for those who cannot see, because this is an audio podcast, Brent's laughing at me. Um, and this is a comment. This is a comment. <laughs> I had to thing. put myself on mute. Yeah. So, um, you know, you, you kind of did it there. Uh, so that's me agreeing with you in my own personal way and, and ranting. Um, you, you kind of started to mention it there. Um, So now an executive looks at at his business, he reflects, he, she, they uh, look at their business and they say, um, you know, I I need to make a change and uh, I need to go invest in something. And I don't believe I can do it myself because I don't have a 24 by seven sock. Um, I don't want to have to try to keep my staff trained. I don't believe that that is our core competency. I think we can run a network, but I'd like somebody else to make sure that it has fortified walls. When what you know, what is it that makes secure works the place that they are going to step forward and create a, you know, an engagement with uh, and have a long term relationship?
2: You, you know, so, you know, you know, some of that goes back to uh, if you look at the core values of, of secure works and 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 honestly, we as a leadership team just took a step back. And and looked at those, uh, re- ensured that our core values are still re- relevant to the clients that we have uh, today. And and and, I, and I'm always inspired by a, le- a leadership team that's willing to take a step back and make sure that we're still providing value to clients. And first of all, we uh, just want to make sure you guys can still hear me. You guys good? We can. Yes. Oh, good. I apologize. I, I so so first of all, if we put clients first, you know, so our clients are the center of everything we do, and we serve. Our clients uh, with the highest standards. Uh, integrity is a, a core value of SecureWorks. We do the right thing, not just when someone's not looking, but all the time. You know, we take ownership. We take ownership uh, uh, in everything we do. With that, we make a mistake, we own up to it. And but at the same time, if you've empowered us to you know protect your network, we're gonna you know be your trusted security partner. Uh, we're also you know respectively honest as well, meaning. Uh, we owe you ground truth. We we don't want to just come in and you write an RFP and we're the guys that are going to go check the block and what you requested. If you're asking for the wrong things, we owe it to you as security professionals to let you know that. And then ultimately, you know, we're, our goal is to out-innovate the adversary. And we have the ability to leverage 4,600 clients uh, that have paid us uh, to protect them, and and leverage that uh, ultimately synergy with those clients to understand how to best uh, not only detect the adversary but also prevent the threats that we can where we can, and also respond to those threats in a very rapid way. And you know, and, and I and I struggle all the time of those that think I'm going to go build out a research group or I'm going to build out an analyst team. I'm going to figure out how to retain top talent i'm going to build out an incident response team and oh by the way i'm going to understand all these technologies and oh by the way you know security the best security tool today in 18 months will be some other vendor and some other product and and allowing somebody else to help you weed through that that craziness so that they can tell you what the best investment you can make at the right time at the right place to provide the greatest value to you as an organization. And so I'm very proud to be part of what I believe is a, is a great team uh, that ultimately is focused on client first. And, and we say all the time, if you don't protect the client, nothing else matters. Uh, and, and and that's a great place to be from my perspective, especially from a guy who retired from the Department of Defense and was inspired by so many you know soldiers and service members day in and day out that would go beyond the call of duty to do what's right for the nation. You know, at SecureWorks, it's the same passion. We do what's right for our clients every day, and we'll go beyond the call of duty to help protect our clients. So, guys, I appreciate the opportunity to have this discussion with you. I I look forward to to follow-on discussions. I'd love to get our chief technology officer, as I said, Don Smith, on the line. If you'd like to have a conversation around... You know threat actors and, and our threat intelligence Don Smith who runs my cyber intelligence cell he'll talk to you about nation states all day long but we got a wealth of expertise and I, I'm sure you can tap into for future of these as well
0: yeah it was awesome uh, we really appreciate it and uh, we know you so we are going to do what's right by our client which is you uh, and we are going to wrap this thing up uh, so you know on uh, on behalf of the hot owl uh, this is Brian Carpenter and with me and I'm Brent Piatti. And, uh, you know, Barry, we really appreciate you being here today.
2: Guys, I appreciate the opportunity. I appreciate what you do for the community at large. Education is key uh, to combat the, the threats that we have out there today. Thanks, guys.
0: Thank you.